So tonight's sermon text comes out of Mark chapter 10, verses 25 through 35. Well, I get situated here. Let me, there we go. Mark chapter 10, verses uh, 35 through 45. And it reads like this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers, the Gentiles, well, they ward it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, I pray that you would teach us now what it means to not use this power improperly, but appropriately as children of the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so Frederick Nietzsche, a famous philosopher, uh, said, the world is the will to power and nothing besides. And you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing besides. Well, later on, Malcolm X, sort of echoing the same type sentiment, said, power never takes a step back except in the face of more power. Indeed, at first glance, these statements, I have to admit to you, um, they, they make sense to me. Everything about them makes sense to me. I mean, the animal kingdom around us certainly seems at least to operate like that by brute force. Only the strong survive, the weak are edited out, they go extinct. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that Nietzsche so detested Christianity, and he did, is because if it had altered this seemingly natural course of the universe. This is the way it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be the strong that survive and that thrive. And Christianity comes along with all this compassion for the weak and empathy for the poor and wanting to help people that should die off survive. And this is messing up the whole natural order of things. As painful as it might be, this world is red in tooth and claw, and it's time for us to stop fighting that delusion, Nietzsche said, without a blink. And so, it's 
What happened? I mean, it's not necessarily that it was all linked to Nietzsche, but 20th century, there was a great number of nation states that took that philosophy to heart. I mean, essentially, if you look at uh, the various oppressive regimes that uh, came along in the 20th century, you will find that most of them had in some way or another some sort of philosophy that said, essentially, yes, the strong are the ones that survive and the weak need to be eliminated. So you can get Stalin or Lenin saying in uh, the run-up to especially Stalinism, tens of millions of people are dying and the gulags are being filled with people. Well, you know, in order to change the world, I'm paraphrasing, a few eggs need to be cracked. I mean, look all, look all through the world. Maoist China, uh, Khmer Rouge, Cambodia, they all had versions of who they thought the weakened society were, and they were going to do their best to get rid of them, to preserve the strong, because that is the way the world works, by power. And, unfortunately, it produced the bloodiest century that the world's ever known. And so there was, I, mean, I think it's fair to say, a reaction against that. To say, like, no, no, well, this can't be the way it is because it creates a world that, frankly, is not a great place to live in. So, I mean, we, we can't necessarily buy into the, the Christian idea that, that was ruling forever. But we can, postmodern philosophers would say, we can at least try and limit this abuse of power. And so they would say something like this. Well, yes, it's true that all of life is about who's in power, but we should seek to avoid that. Um, in other words, we should seek to equal out the scales. And so this is how you do it. All of history is basically a tale or a story of one group that is in power, the oppressor, automatically, if they're in power, and then the others that are the oppressed. Everything comes down to the oppressor and the oppressed. And so we will simply say that any group of person that has the power in any given circumstance, in any given country, takes the position of oppressor and the group or person without power is inherently the oppressed. So to equal things out, we ought to always stand by the side of the oppressed. But there's a problem. One of the postmodern philosophers, Michel Foucault, said, well, but here's the thing. As soon as the oppressed group stops being the oppressed group and they become the ones in power, well, guess what? They become the oppressor, and so it on and on it goes. And so what do we do about this problem of power? The world has not figured out how to handle this thing. And frankly, we in the church can't stand back and be like, look at us, we mastered it, because we haven't done a great job with it either. Human beings, when they get power, tend to use it poorly. The point is, this power dynamic is a conundrum that we can't seem to fix. And it, in the church, it starts even before Jesus is gone. It starts in this, I mean, in passages like this one today. So James and John, two of Jesus' disciples come to him, and they want power. I mean, they're sort of jockeying for positions of power based on what at least they think Jesus' kingdom is going to be like. And so through their jockeying, what we're ultimately going to see tonight is a number of, I guess, sort of proposals for how we are called to handle power in our lives to whatever degree we have it or authority, or influence, however you want to use the word. So, so what are some of these things that we see from our text that uh, James and John sort of bring up? Well, I think the first one, the first possibility for how we can use our power, or why we're given it, 
is it's given to us so that we can order God around. The first possibility is that we're given power so that we can then order God around. Why do I say that? Well, many people's worship throughout history has certainly suggested that. The way it's worked is basically like this. You give God enough of something, whatever the something is that he demands, and in turn, he's obligated to do something great for you. This is the God as vending machine model of religion. Or the God as genie model. It's more common than you'd like to think. And I'd like to tell you that it's just the view of, you know, some people out there. But this is taught in churches all the time, especially on religious television. This is essentially the model that is often taught. God is the vending machine. Do this, give him that, and he will give you abundant blessings, etc., etc. And um, that's kind of where James and John are at here. I mean, I love the boldness. Look at, look at their words. If you look back in your program again, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Whatever we ask of you. So maybe that's what real power looks like. Maybe, maybe it's so that we can tell God what to do and essentially force him to give us what we want. Isn't that so often like, isn't that so often what you find your prayer's going if you're a praying person. God, I have a thing, and I want you to do it for me. I want you to give it for me. I want you to make it happen. And if you don't make it happen, well, I just might get tired of following you. You might not say it like that, but give us enough times of not getting what we think is best for our life, and you know, our faith starts to be stretched. Do for us what whatever we ask of you. But of course, that can't be why we're given power. That can't be why we're given authority in our life because here's the thing, quite literally, we are commanded to do the exact opposite by Jesus. Like literally in his prayer, in his model prayer, like this is how you should pray. What does he tell us to do? He doesn't say, first begin by saying, my will be done. No, no, no. He says, first say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're told many times in scripture, like in the prophet Isaiah, that our ways are not his ways. So we should be very careful when we come to him that we're so certain that our desires match his desires or that our timing matches his timing. The thing wrong with this is, well, basically, basically it's like, you know, I have a six-year-old, Lincoln, and um, it, it's not an unusual thing right before bedtime for him to ask for something really sweet. Usually, you know, like a cupcake or a donut or something. I mean, he wants something sweet. Uh, and it's not unusual for me to say no. Now, in his mind, his will is thinking, this is a good idea. Cupcakes taste good. I like them in my mouth. Make it happen. But I, his father, know that if I give, to give this to him every night, if I give him this sugary treat right before he goes to bed, that it will ultimately be bad for him and harm him. And so the reason that, we're, uh, that it can't be that we're given power so that we can order God around is because we don't know even the first place to start. We're just too ignorant of his ways. 
Matter of fact, Jesus is the one coming to us and saying, Servant, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. That's the roles are reversed. And so, and we are the ones who are to say, Yes, Lord. Nevertheless, Jesus lets him run with it. I love it when Jesus does this. He does this all throughout the Gospels. Somebody says something wrong, and he's like, All right, let's just let's roll with it. So he says, uh, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And their answer brings up a second possibility for why we might be given true power. So it's not for ordering God around. Maybe, maybe then it's just meant to order others around. James and John say, give us a place at your right and left when you rule in your glory. Now we know from the rest of the gospel accounts that the disciples have a particular view of Jesus' glory that they expect to come to pass and it doesn't involve a bloody death on a cross. That's for certain. As a matter of fact, every time he talks about it, one of them or many of them are like, oh, there he goes again talking nonsense. That's not happening. Peter goes as far as to rebuke him. No, you're not doing that, Lord. They believe that because he's the Messiah, that it's only a matter of time before he starts some sort of divine revolution against the occupying power of Rome, that he's going to take over the throne, kick him out. And when he does this, they want in on the action. So give us the highest seats of authority, right and left. And why not? It doesn't feel good to be able to boss people around and have your way to be in charge, to be looked up to. Jesus simply says, you don't know what you're asking. Like, you really don't know what you're asking. And they don't. Because, in fact, in the Gospels, you know what it means to be on his right and his left? Well, it it means two criminals hanging beside him on a cross. You want to see Jesus in his glory? You want to be seated next to him in his glory? That's that's what it's going to look like. You don't know what you're asking, boys. But I think the other reason that Jesus says you don't know what you're asking is because he knows what they would do if they got real power over other people. If you go to the ninth chapter of Luke, just a couple chapters, um, or or just right around the same time that this passage happens in Mark, um, (laughs) you see this remarkable story with the same brothers, James and John. They come across people that reject Jesus in Samaria. And they, they get so frustrated by it, they're so insulted on behalf of Jesus, you know what their first suggestion is? Hey, Lord, those people rejected you. Um, since you have all this power, we've seen you do stuff like raise people from the dead and heal people's blindness and heal their deafness. It's like amazing. I was thinking, and John's like, oh yeah, me too, me too. We were thinking you would call fire down from heaven and nuke the whole town. Huh? What do you think? Pretty good? Pretty good suggestion? And Jesus responds, you don't know what spirit you are of. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? But See, here's the thing. Give us a little bit of power over others and don't be surprised at what we might do or what we might think. Seems crazy to us. I mean, it makes us want to clutch our pearls, you know, when we hear James and John suggest such a scandalous thing. But listen, listen, um, don't get too up on your high horse. If you've ever had somebody steal a parking spot from you on the streets of Manhattan, 
Just take a second to think about the kinds of things that came into your mind. Or if somebody's cut you off in traffic, you're not thinking such sanctified thoughts. I'm telling you, there was one day, this is actually not just one time, there's been a few times where I was, you know, I was parking on the street for the longest time here, and then I had to do alternate side parking, you know, on Monday and Thursday, 10.30 to 12. And so what do you do? You know, you sit in your car, the street sweeper is about to come by, you move over, and then as soon as the street sweeper goes by, I mean as soon, you mash back in there so that no one takes your spot. There's been a couple times where someone has indeed taken my spot. And I would like to tell you that I got out and blessed my enemies. I don't think anybody would have interpreted at least the look on my face as a blessing. I mean, I was angry. I was upset. I was... don't, Don't get too down on James and John. Newcomb Lord! They took my parking spot. But Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You know, I, there's, a, there's an interesting experiment that happened some years ago. You're probably familiar with it if you're not uh, even familiar with the name. You ever heard of the Milgram experiment? The name you might not know, but you probably are familiar with the, the actual experiment. The, the Milgram experiment on obedience to authority figures was a series of social psychology experiments uh, conducted by a Yale University psychologist, Stanley Milgram. And essentially, what he had them do uh, is they measured the willingness of study participants, men from a diverse range of backgrounds, diverse range of occup- occupations with varying levels of education, um, to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. And so participants were led to believe that they were assisting an unrelated experiment um, in which they had to administer electric shocks to, quote, a learner. And, the, and, and Milgram would sort of stand behind the curtain and would order them each time the learner did something that wasn't right or didn't give a right answer to give a shock. And these people really thought, who were administering the shocks, they really thought that the person on the other side was getting shocked. And Milgram kept on telling them to up the shock to the point where when they did it, if it was really happening, it would have killed the learner. And Milgram was stunned to find out that a high proportion of the people who administered this test were willing to go that far. People they'd never known. Don't underestimate what we do with power. And so it can't be, we cannot be given power merely to rule over others or to order others around because we're not so hot with that. So no, I'm afraid we're not given power so that we can do that. Well then, is it it at least given to us so that we can beat out our peers? I mean, come on. Isn't that what the name of the game is all about? Can we at least just say it's, we're given power so that we can look at our peers and say, I win? I mean, James and John, they're not the only bad guys in this story. You know, they're not the only ones implicated. They are lobbying Jesus for the positions of power. And what does it say the other disciples do? They're indignant. Why didn't I think of that? I want the position of power. I don't want them to have it. I want it. And so they'll start arguing about who deserves the power. Or just like my kids, they start arguing over who gets the front seat. I get it. No, I get it. No, I get it. I want the right and the left. I want it. No, I want it. And so on and so forth. 
And as Jesus sees the other disciples getting mad at James and John, he finally delivers what power is given for. Here's the answer. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In other words, what Jesus says, what Jesus does is he gives people authority and power in various spheres of their lives. He does with these very disciples. He will give them an incredible amount of authority, an incredible amount of power over thousands and thousands of people's souls. By the time we get to the book of Acts, we see all that. They become pastors of hundreds and thousands of human beings. That's a huge responsibility. But he gives them that authority, gives them that power so that they can use it to benefit others. There is the key. And here is the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Whereas the world says we hoard power to gain more for ourselves The Christian message says we gain more so we can spend it on others. And you say, well, good. That sounds easy enough. But of course, no, it's not. Because we don't do this naturally, Jesus has to do it for us as our substitute. You say, where Where does it say that in our passage? Well, here's where. As he begins to tell James and John that, yeah, you don't know what they're saying, he asks them a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What he is talking about there when he says cup is the cup of God's wrath against sin. And when he talks about the baptism, he is talking about the flood of wrath that he will experience on the cross. Why does he go to the cross? In order to pay for the sins of the world in order to serve others. He is saying to James and John and you and I that in order to pay for humanity's unwillingness to serve, he, God Almighty, will serve. He will suffer willingly. He will die. Thus he concludes our passage, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he also says to James and John and to us that as his followers, we can expect that there's going to be sacrifice in our lives too. That with more power, to quote Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, comes great responsibility. That with more power comes more sacrifice. And you say, well, this doesn't seem very powerful to me. If the only reason we're given power is so that we can let it go and sacrifice it on behalf of others. But just think about it. This is always the way it goes. The way, the, I mean, Jesus is the most powerful person on, in the universe. I mean, he was, it, it, Philippians tells us in Philippians 2, that by willingly giving up his life, he was raised to new life and exalted above all other things. And Jesus Christ, the one who gives his life away for the sake of others, now has the largest following in human history. It all happened by laying down his power. So when you understand this paradox, then you understand what you're given your authority for, whatever sphere of life. And every one of you has it. 
Every one of you has some level of authority, whether it's in your job or whether it's in your home. No matter where you're at, you have some level of authority. It might be minimal or it might be maximum. But the principle is the same. We are given the authority, the benefit of others. This is why Martin Luther could write in his wonderful little book, The Freedom of the Christian, or On Christian Liberty, quote, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Sounds amazing. He's he's basically saying, through faith in Jesus, we're not subject to anybody, only Jesus Christ. But then the very next sentence, he says this, A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. We use our freedom and our power to serve. You say, well, that's just religion. That's a religious belief. I don't see any evidence of that working in real life. Give me something that works in real life. Okay, fine. Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King. Civil rights movement. All throughout his ministry for civil rights, people were pressing him on all sides to fight back or to take up arms. The common knowledge was, of course, the only way to fight fire was with more fire. What did Martin Luther King insist? Mm-mm. Nonviolence. I'm going to lay it down. We're not, we're not fighting back. And so as the hoses came down on the protesters on the streets of Alabama or on the marchers, as the, as the dogs were sicked on them, they did not fight back. And King said over and over and again, based on texts like this one, that they, the way their movement would ultimately gain power would be to respond by laying down their arms. And by laying down their power, they made greater strides for civil rights than ever before. And so you too, Christian, with whatever influence or power you've been given, have been given it for a purpose. Not to lord it over others, but to give it away for others, to serve others, because this is what Jesus has done for you. I want to close with a very practical example of this, and then we'll pray and move on to communion. This is, I think is about 10 years ago. Maybe longer. My time is a little bit off now because it's been a while since I uh, lived in California, where I'm originally from. But um, my parents had a neighbor that they kind of moderately got along with. Next door neighbor. They weren't enemies at all. They were, you know, kind of. They would say hi and that sort of thing as they saw each other. Um, But this neighbor wanted to build a fence, a new fence, along there, along the side that they shared. And so she came to my parents and said, I'd like to build this kind of fence, and I was wondering if we could split the cost. And my dad said, no, I really don't want that fence. I'm sorry, but I just like the fence the way it is. And she said, well, I really like that fence. He says, yeah, but I, I mean, I'm just not comfortable with it. And so they just, they, he thought, agreed to disagree. Okay, like she wants to do this, but he wants to keep the fence the way it is. Well, fast forward a few weeks, 5.30 in the morning, barely light outside. My dad wakes up to noises in the backyard. And it's noises of many men talking and lots of things banging around and it sounds like things are being broken. And he goes outside in the backyard and unbeknownst to him, the fence is being taken down. And my dad said, hey, you know, you can't take down this fence. And by this time the fence was, you know, just nearly abolished. They had come really early in the morning and basically taken most of it down. And my dad was furious. I mean, 
my mom was furious. And I remember for, for days they were plotting, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they, they were going to call a lawyer, and they were going to make sure justice served against the neighbor. And they were, they were ready. They were ready to fight back with whatever power they had. And for a few weeks it went like that. And every time I saw them, it was just that was the whole topic of conversation. And they weren't talking to the neighbor anymore. And there was a, like, a, like a spiritual wall up now between them. They were enemies. And it happened so much that even, even I found myself being like, oh, yeah, get her. You know, like, justice, ah, power. And then one day I came over to my parents' house and I noticed there was something immediately different about their mood about their whole just, just existence, their essence. And I asked him, I said, what's the status on the lawsuit? And she said, and my parents said, oh, we just came to a decision the other night that it wasn't worth it to fight this and it wasn't worth it to be so bitter and angry. It wasn't worth it. We're just gonna, we're gonna let it go. And I protested. I was like, no. No, it's not fair. That's not fair. You have the power to do something about it. She's clearly wrong. Fix it. Because we really need the old fence back. Like I cared. But they said, no. We feel feel better now than we have in weeks. And we just don't don't want to feel better anymore. We're not going to do it. And they didn't. They let it go. Long story short, I was with my parents last year, and uh, and they're great friends with the neighbor now. They, I mean, everything's fine. Everything's resolved. They talked it out. It's fine. It's done. Now, is that the, is that always going to be the solution? Are there times where we do we might need to get the law involved? Yes, of course there is. Of course, this is not a story that governs all of life. This is just a story to say. This is just an illustration to say that it is possible. It is possible, as Jesus points out here, to lay down the power that we think we have for the sake of others, and in the end, find that it benefits us even more than them that it actually brings life out of something that could easily kill. So let us strive to do that as God gives us strength to do it to our neighbor as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your upside-down kingdom that calls us to use our power not to hoard, uh, hoard it to ourselves, but for the good of others. Help us, Father, not to be afraid of the consequences, but to trust you for the outcomes. I think that's often what gets in the way here. We want to be in control. And this this whole being a part of your kingdom thing just takes it right out of our hands. It's, it's not yours to control. Your life is not your own. You were bought, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God, your word says. Help us to receive that and accept that and trust you for the outcomes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to...